Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This program is about Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who lived from 1826 to 1892 and was a vibrant and leading figure in the suffragist movement of that century. Matilda Jocelyn Gage, an outspoken leader for women's rights and an advocate to abolish slavery and religious bigotry, became historically invisible in pursuit of her liberty to think and speak as she thought proper. She was threatened with jail for voting in New York in 1871 and later inducted into the Iroquois nation after publicly declaring Christian theology to be a primary source of the oppression of women. Historian Sally Roche Wagner portrays Matilda Jocelyn Gage and brought Gage into the limelight by creating the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation based in Fayetteville, New York. The Gage Foundation is dedicated to educating current and future generations about Gage's work and the power of her work to drive contemporary social change. You may learn more at matildajocelyngage.org. I met with Sally Roche Wagner in the studios of Radio Curious in December 1996. Our conversation begins with her portrayal of Mrs. Gage. I welcome Matilda Jocelyn Gage to Radio Curious. Thank you, sir. Why do you make the statement, Matilda, if I may, that... Mrs. Gage. Mrs. Gage. Uh, why do you make the statement that the church was one of the primary uh, sources of women's oppression? I do not make that statement, sir. I make the statement that it was the major source of women's oppression. There is no other institution that comes near its damaging effect toward women. How does it do the damage? What are the causes as you see them? What is the foundation of Christian belief? It is in the evil of woman. If it was not for the sin of Eve, there would have been no need for a redeemer, for a savior. It was the idea of Christianity that woman was the source of evil. And so, of course, if we follow that through, we begin to see the results of such a detrimental teaching. Well, how is that portrayed or played out in uh, the purveyance of uh, Christianity? Well, here is one example. In the Middle Ages, when women were attended by midwives in childbirth, midwives who gave them belladonna or herbs that would remove the pain of childbirth, the midwives were burned at the stake by the church as witches. Their crime? They had violated the Bible's teaching, presumably the teaching of God, according to Christianity, that because of the sin of Eve, in pain and suffering, women shall bring forth children. And anyone who alleviated that pain in childbirth was doing the work of the devil, was a witch, was evil, and must be burned at the stake for such a crime. When you related this concept, uh, what was the public reaction 
to you? Well, the reaction was one of disbelief and one of, of course, accusing me of heresy. The reason is that the church's hold had not ceased. And the very teachings that had burned women at the stake in the Middle Ages continued to act to the detriment of women. In my time, when physicians began to introduce anesthesia to take away the pain of childbirth, they were also accused of doing the work of the devil because they were taking away the pain and suffering that woman was to suffer. Your father, a physician, was he so accused? Because he was... Oh, my father was accused of almost everything. He was an abolitionist. He was the radical of all reformers and proud of it. And I suspect that you're proud of it. You say that with with a great grin. Yes. Uh, And and a sense of of, uh, support for his ideas. Of course. I understand that your primary education, your early years of education, were from him at home? They were. He believed, as did a few of the radical reformers of the day, that children should be trained to think, not to be obedient. This was, of course, heresy again. Heresy against the church's teaching that children shall be obedient, spare the rod and spoil the child, as the Bible teaches. My father did not believe that. He believed that children should have their own thoughts, and he trained his daughter I will proudly tell you to think for herself. It was the most important lesson of my life. What kind of conflicts did you have in your early childhood with either your father or your mother having been taught to think for yourself? The conflicts were not with my parents. They were with the world at large. When I was 10, I confronted the church fathers, believing that they were, in fact, distrustful, that they were, that they were not truthful. And when my father, who was on a visit away from home, learned that I had done this, he immediately came to my defense and supported me. I was to think my own thoughts, even if they were in conflict with any authority. And what was the fallout or the reaction to your father's support of you? Well, my father and I both eventually left that church, sooner rather than later. When was that? Can you give us a year, an approximate time 1836. And in subsequent years, you became involved in the women's suffrage movement. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your life and your experiences and your thoughts from the mid-1830s up to the suffrage movement. I wish so to become a physician as my father was, but there was not a college or university open to women My father wrote to his professors and asked them if I might be admitted to Geneva where he had studied. And he was told I could not. This is Geneva, New York, not Geneva, Switzerland. No, Geneva, New York. And of course, it was only a few years after that that another woman applied to the school. The professors thought that her application was a joke. They thought, in fact, that it was sent 
from the students at Fairfield, another medical college nearby. And so they turned the application over to the students and asked them what they wanted to do. The men, thinking it was a challenge from the Fairfield students, said, well, of course, we'll admit her. And their mouths dropped to the ground when a flesh and blood woman walked into the school and they couldn't deny her existence or her presence. They were mortified when Elizabeth Blackwell did far better than any of the men at the college and they closed the doors of Geneva College to women until actually they combined with Syracuse Medical College a number of years later. I did not become a physician. I did not go to university. I became a wife and a mother, and my first women's rights convention was in Syracuse in 1852 when the national convention was held there. It was also the first convention that Susan B. Anthony attended in the first time I met her. We entered the ranks together the same year. Tell us about your relationship with her and Elizabeth Cady Stanton being one of the three women uh, who are the outspoken uh, leaders for women's right to vote. One of our papers at the time said these three names linked together in the editorship of the history of women's suffrage will be passed down through the ages. Except that your name was subsequently not passed down through the ages as much as were their names. There were political reasons for that Those within are? our movement. Those reasons are? I will tell you briefly. When the National Woman Suffrage Association and the American Woman Suffrage Association were formed separately, they were very different organizations with very different goals. The National believed I was part of that organization, as was Miss Anthony and Mrs. Stanton, that women had the right to vote in the United States of America and that the United States government was violating our rights in not protecting our inherent right to the ballot as citizens of a republic. The American Woman Suffrage Association asked the government of each state for the right to vote. We said it is the states which are in error. They have not the right to deny or to give the ballot. We have that right. So you see how they undercut our idea and our principles. The American Woman Suffrage Association were an organization of askers, and we were an organization of demanders. We also believe that it was not simply the vote. In fact, Mrs. Stanton and I said, the ballot is not even a half a loaf. It is a crumb. It is the tool by which we can lift the fourfold oppression that woman suffers at the hands of the church, the family, the capitalist, and the state. This fourfold oppression was what we must fight. The ballot was simply a tool. We fought all of those issues, and the American did not. When Miss Anthony arranged a merger between the American and the National, she brought in, along with the American, the dangerous Women's Christian Temperance Union, an organized army of mother love which had in mind a merger of church and state, 
by placing God in the Constitution, prayer in the public schools, and using women's ballot to do this. Women should get the right to the ballot in order to destroy religious freedom in this country. I was a thoroughgoing radical and reformer and a believer in freedom and justice. These new women wanted the ballot for women in order to destroy freedom and justice. When Miss Anthony effected that merger between the two organizations, we became mortal enemies. And forever went your separate ways? If I am to speak truth long after the fact, we did see each other a few times on a few occasions and perhaps did affect some sort of a private coming together again later in our lives. But the political difference was always there. Let me take a moment and say that my guest this week is Matilda Jocelyn Gage, one of the leading suffragists in the last half of the 19th century. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. What was the relationship of Elizabeth Cady Stanton when you and Susan B. Anthony had your disagreement as to how things should be? After the merger took place between the American and the National, I formed an anti-church organization, the Women's National Liberal Union, believing that the true work that we needed to do now was to fight the source of women's oppression, namely the church. Mrs. Stanton said she would be happy to be part of that organization, but she would not take any official capacity because she was tired of conferences, conventions. She was didn't want to do that work anymore. But when she was offered the presidency of the combined National American Woman Suffrage Association, she accepted it. What is your reaction to that acceptance? Did she go with it well? I kept my reactions private. Will you share them with us? We are all united in the great cause of justice. Mrs. Stanton and I perhaps found different ways to find the path to justice. But she was agreed in the 1880s that she was sick of the song of suffrage and that the great business of our life should be attacking the church for its attack on women. And when I published My Woman, Church, and State in 1893, she followed two years later with her woman's Bible, to which I was a contributor. You may be answering my next question, but I want to go back and and build on something you said. And that was that the right to vote was just one of several tools. Yes. What are some of the other tools? Well, the tools, I think, were many of them political. We also believe that if women had some economic foundation upon which to force their opinions into the world, we would have a much stronger footing. Women were, of course, denied employment in almost every capacity, and those few occupations open to women were paid half the wages that men were paid for doing the same work. 
economic equality was a condition, was a tool that was required in order to fight the fight of justice in other arenas. Other tools? The political tools were ones that we used all the time. I came up with a new idea. You see, the men who had been denied the vote after they had been declared traitors to the country, when they had uh, retreated from the United States and formed the Confederacy during the Civil War or before the Civil War, they were able to get their right to vote back through a process in Congress of a relief of their political disabilities. Their congressperson, their congressman would place a bill before Congress saying this man should have his right to vote returned to him. Well, if the traitors to the United States could be given the right to vote again, could not the loyal women citizens be given their right? And so I introduced the relief of political disabilities into Congress. And many women had their congressmen introduce this legislation. None of it was passed. I'd like to hear more about that, but I want to ask you about your relationship with the Iroquois Nation and how it was that you were invited to become a member. The church and state alike told us, as did custom, that the condition of women was as it had always been, that woman was naturally and inherently and by God's own divine will made subordinate to man. We looked to see if this in fact was the case. Was there an example ever in the world in which woman stood shoulder to shoulder with man? And we found the example in our own backyard. Only miles away from Syracuse, New York, was the center of the Iroquois Confederacy at Onondaga. And there women had rights that we could not even dream of. There women alone had suffrage. There women had rights to their own property. The children were not in the line of the father, but in the line of the mother. Women were the agriculturalists. They raised corn, beans, and squash. They were the finest agriculturalists this land has ever seen. They were women who lived without any fear from men. I knew a woman who taught at Onondaga, a white woman, and she said, I can walk any time of the day or night, anywhere on, the, on this reservation, and I am never afraid because these men never violate women. Now, this clearly was our evidence. There was nothing God-ordained. There was nothing natural in the condition of women as subordinate and inferior, as defined by Christendom. I wrote about the superior position of women under the Iroquois Confederacy, and I was eventually asked if I would wish to be adopted into the wolf clan of the Mohawk Nation, and I was. And in the same year in which I was arrested for voting in my very own nation, I was given suffrage in this foreign Indian nation into which I was adopted. What did you do with that disparity? I was strengthened. 
I took vision. I knew that if women anywhere could live without fear, could live without a sense of being inferior, could live with a sense of their true personhood, that it was possible for all women, that it was the institutions of our Christian nation that prevented us from living with the superior position of Indian women. And I found it was not just Iroquois women, that it was quite true of all Indian nations. In the remainder of your life, were you able to advance the concepts and the visions that uh, the Iroquois shared with you and bestowed upon you in, in the adoption? I wrote... I spoke. I did what I could. I was an increasingly tired old woman. And my book met the reception I anticipated, Woman, Church, and State, when I talked about the superior position of women under the matriarchate, when I talked about the evil of Christianity for women, My book was, of course, denounced by those who wished Christendom to continue its power over women. And in fact, Anthony Comstock threatened to bring legal proceedings against any school which placed this book on its shelf. He said, Woman, Church, and State is filled with tales of lust. Those tales of lust were my talking about how eight- and nine-year-old girls in New York City were selling their bodies for food to eat. I said, a fool as a press censor is worse than a knave. Anthony Comstock is a combination of the two. Buddha said that the one great sin was ignorance. If that is the case, then Anthony Comstock is a great sinner. Matilda Jocelyn Gage, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. But before we close, could you tell us of an interesting book, uh, perhaps in addition to your book, Women, Church, and State? Madame Blavatsky's The Secret Doctrine is a most interesting account of how that which we believe to be supernatural is in fact only natural processes pushed down, pushed under, denied by Christianity. Matilda Jocelyn Gage, thank you for joining us at Radio Curious. Thank you, sir. And Sally Roche Wagner, welcome to Radio Curious. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. Good to see you again. It's nice. It's to always ha- fun to work with you. It's nice to have you here again. And last time you were here as Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I was. And uh, we should talk with Susan B. Anthony sometime in the future. I will not speak as Susan B. Anthony. Why? I disrespect her too much. Because of the things that yes. you were telling us as, as yes. Matilda. Mm-hmm. How is it for you going from one alter ego to another? I'll tell you the difference. Uh, Stanton was just on the edge. And when I image myself into Stanton, I image myself sort of sitting on the edge of a great big easy chair and putting both of my my uh, hands into a fist and I put my chin on that fist and I'm just up there on the edge of that chair ready to do battle. Gage comes from a much more interior place and I bring myself back, I draw myself into myself 
more when I uh, when I come forward as Gage. Gage also was more. A difference between the two is that Stanton tickles you with truth, and Gage brings a laser beam into your head, uh, and she is relentless. These characterizations of these two women are based on your studies. Mm-hmm. And you I study I don't know whether <laughs> whether that word embraces the sort of living in the 19th century with them. Uh, when I was asked to be a consultant on the a 20th century project at the Smithsonian, and I mentioned it to a friend of mine, she just hooted. She said, "The 20th century, you haven't entered it yet." And uh, I think I spend, I, it's sort of less research than hanging out with them in the 19th century. And uh, at one point I realized that I was, I'd reached the critical balance. I was reading more 19th century stuff than I was reading 20th century stuff. Uh, more letters, more books. I try to really replicate their lives as much as I can. The correspondence they had with other people, with each other, of course. And also... Um, what they were reading, the newspapers, the books. Your work in this area mm-hmm. caused you to say that Matilda Jocelyn Gage was written out of history. Yes. Why? Well, she gave you the quick and dirty. Um, that's a question that's plagued me for over 20 years. And the answer that she gives is as close as I can give you. Um, there's actually a lot more background, obviously, to it. But I think uh, the other thing is that all of her children eventually moved to Dakota Territory, and she didn't have a champion. Her letters were in the collection of her, were in the home of her granddaughter and namesake, where I discovered them as Columbus discovered America. <laughs> they were there in my hometown of Aberdeen, South Dakota, and I fell into this collection of papers. And until that point, nobody sort of had Matilda Jocelyn Gage's side of the story. And so now there's there's in some ways a, a rebirth of interest in her. I'm bringing out a new edition of Woman, Church, and State uh, in, we're hoping to bring it out in 98 with Syracuse University Press in time for the 100th anniversary of her death. And I'm going to be a distinguished professor at, visiting professor at Syracuse University this winter. And uh, we'll be working with people there hopefully on the first uh, Gage Convention, uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage Convention. There are a number of people that are doing research and writing on her now. So hopefully we'll bring her back into the world. Well, Sally, I want to thank you, too, for joining us at Radio Curious and, again, ask you the question that uh, I asked Mrs. Gage. Can you tell us of an interesting book that you've read? (laughs) I would have to say that. Again, it's that 19th century problem. Right now, what I'm doing is is uh, concentrating on re-reading Woman, Church, and State for the, I don't know how many times, and I'm finding more fresh, new ideas and insights in that book. Reading it again, I'm reading it again for um, the new introduction I'll be writing uh, to the new edition of it. If so a person were to, to want to find that book, mm-hmm. how would uh, that be done? Uh, many libraries and, uh, well, libraries, not bookstores. It's totally out of print. But the 1980 Persephone Press edition that I did the introduction to and Mary Daly did the foreword, that's available in a number of libraries. That's Persephone Press? Mm-hmm. 1980. Well, Sally Wagner, thank you again for joining us on Radio Curious. Barry, it's always a treat. Thanks.
Sally Roche Wagner is the executive director of the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation, located in Fayetteville, New York. Visit their website, matildajocelyngage.org. The book Matilda Jocelyn Gage recommends is The Secret Doctrine, The Synthesis of Science, Religion, and Philosophy by Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. The book Dr. Sally Roche Wagner recommends is Women, Church, and State by Matilda Jocelyn Gage. You may learn more at matildajocelyngage.org. This program was recorded in December 1996. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.